Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to ARC 203, Achieving Agility by Following Well-Architected Framework Principles. My name is Tim DeLauro, and I'm a solutions architect with AWS, um, as well as we have Joe Gardner, who is uh, the principal cloud architect with National Instruments. So I know at this time of the day, we're kind of between y'all and happy hour and the replay party, so let's kind of dive in and, and get started. So what are we gonna talk about this afternoon? So you heard uh, Werner talk about it this morning a little bit in the keynote as to what is the well-architected framework. We're gonna dive into that a little bit deeper. We're gonna dive into the design principles and tenets about being well-architected. And then probably why most of you are interested in this particular session um, is hearing from Joe and National Instruments on how they got to getting to well-architected and how that's allowing them to move faster on the platform. So the AWS Well-Architected Framework. So what is the AWS Well-Architected Framework? Well, it is in fact a framework that we developed here at AWS by solutions architects, some of my peers, through all of the various dialogues and conversations that we have with many of our customers and clients throughout the globe all the time. We've taken those different dialogues based on different workloads and different applications and kind of conform those into a set of questions and those questions allow us to kind of evaluate best practices for uh, how to evaluate choosing architecture decisions on the platform. But what are those kind of questions and the general design principles to, to facilitate those good design patterns in the cloud? Many times, and you've heard this throughout probably your time here at reInvent this year, is stop guessing capacity needs, right? Having your demand curve and your capacity curve match. Testing your production system, or testing systems at production scale understanding what your systems will do as, as they would see in production, or as Joe will talk about even beyond production, um, is, is critically important to understanding um, and making sure that your platform's gonna serve your customers as, as needed. Taking the data that your, your platform is, is delivering to you, so that's metrics from CloudWatch or logs from the various parts of your application, and using that data to make decisions on how to improve your architecture as you move forward. And then automating the ability to experiment. So experimentation is one of the, one of the really uh, powerful things about AWS. You know, the ability to try something, test it, test it at production scale, and then doing that in an automated fashion to making sure that's gonna deliver what you need is, is something that's truly pretty powerful and, and just a general design good practice. And then lastly, as far as kind of a general best practice for design in the cloud is kind of allowing for evolution. Right? The ability for you to making sure that you're not locking yourself into a decision today for you know, services and features that AWS may deliver over time or that your own software uh, may, may come, you know, have to, to fruition over time. So allowing yourself to kind of change as your use case changes over time. So again, what are the well-architected framework is a set of questions and we've aligned these sets of questions around five different pillars. This one of the new pillars that, that Werner actually talked about this morning was the new pillars being operational excellence. But again, it's a set of questions that are derived from those, those different conversations that people across AWS have with customers and clients all the time. And they're aligned to these different five. Security, reliability, performance efficiency, cost optimization, and then as I said, operational excellence. So let's dive into each one of those pillars and kind of talk around what are the general best design practices for each one of those pillars. So let's look at security. So when we're talking about security, we're talking about protecting information, 
your systems and assets while delivering business value. So what does that actually mean? Well, it starts with things like focusing on securing the system. One of the foundational things you'll hear in all of the various sessions that you attend at AWS and around security is the shared responsibility model. With the shared responsibility model, when you're focusing on securing the system, you need to focus on the part of the shared responsibility model that is your responsibility and let AWS take care of the other parts that are AWS responsibility in, in that shared responsibility model. Enabling traceability, making sure that, you know, not only are you capturing information about what's going on from a security perspective through logs, but that you're actually doing something with those logs and, and allowing yourself to trace what, act, what artifacts or actions may be happening against your software and platform at any given point in time. Security at, security at every single layer. So in VPC, you can enable thing, you know, enable network ACLs to secure subnets and prevent certain types of traffic from traversing subnets, enabling security groups on every single load balancer and, and uh, RDS instance or EC2 instance. These are things that you want to enable as a general best practice and have unique sets of rules for your application at every single layer. And then lastly is implementing a principle of least privilege. A very basic example here is perhaps you have someone in your organization that's in accounts payable or billing or accounting or something along those lines that pays your AWS bill. That same person doesn't need the ability to launch an instance in most cases. So having that person just restricted to looking at utilization and billing would be a best practices from a least privileged perspective. The reliability pillar. The reliability pillar, in short, basically says the ability of a system to recover from infrastructure or service disruption, and then basically being able to recover from that. So critically important to that is testing the recovery procedure. This is no different than in many other technology platforms, but at AWS, it's, it's critically important as well. If you don't actually test your recovery procedure, the ability for you to understand what's going to happen in the event of some kind of failure condition, is, not, is, is usually going to result in a kind of undesirable outcome. Automatically recovering from failure. You want your, you want your application, you want your architecture of your infrastructure to rec recover from failure conditions. Whether that's a, you know, an instance failure um, in your web fleet or any other kind of failure condition, you want to make sure that you enable the system overall to, to recover from that failure condition automatically. Kind of tying into that as well as being able to scale horizontally to increase availability. If you have a number of different, if you have a number of smaller instances, let's say web servers as an example, and you have many smaller instances in your web server fleet, and you have one instance fails, the blast radius of that single failure condition is much smaller than if you have fewer larger instances. So the ability for you to scale out as your, as traffic scales out, allows you not only to kind of facilitate uh, performance and capacity, but reliability as well. And that also ties back into automatically recovering from failure. When you take a look at things like scaling out and scaling in, you're taking advantage most likely in, in, in auto-scaling and leveraging auto-scaling not only to kind of do that scaling, but also kind of recovering from that failure condition as well. And that all kind of comes together with stopping, uh, stop guessing capacity. So with, with features like auto-scaling, you don't want to over-provision your fleet. Let's use a web server example again. You don't want to have web servers automatically provisioned for kind of their peak workload um, when your peak workload is maybe Tuesday afternoon uh, on a Sunday afternoon when no one's really using your system. So take advantage of what auto-scaling is doing for you so that it can automatically scale as, as, your, system does, as your system needs. 
So the performance efficiency pillar. Basically, what the performance efficiency pillar says is efficiently, efficiently using resources in the platform, right? And what are we talking about there? We're talking about things about taking advantage of the democratization of technologies as we create them. So as AWS creates services and features, take a look at those services and features and how you can take advantage of those. So less, there's less things for you to have to kind of uh, monitor, manage, and maintain over the course of that system's lifecycle. So if you look at something like taking advantage of relational database service. So if you have, if you have a database need, take, using an RDS instance to facilitate that need allows you to focus on kind of the, the important things in your application, you know, optimizing schema and whatnot, rather than worrying about kind of the undifferentiated heavy lifting as it pertains to managing a database. You know, taking a look at serverless architectures. You know, we look at a service like Lambda, the ability for you to really scale in parallel um, is, is pretty powerful using serverless architectures. We, we find ourselves as solutions architects at AWS, we have co conversations with customers and clients as to asking the question as to why do you even need the server to begin with? Going global in minutes. When you go global in minutes, as you have more users spread across the planet, you can use the region that makes the most sense for those sets of users. So if you have servers, if, or you have end, uh, end users in Asia or Australia, use regions that are closer to those users as opposed to users that may be here in North America and using one of our North American regions. Cost optimization pillar. The cost optimization pillar basically says, don't spend more money on the AWS platform where it's not needed. So we're, we're looking at things like taking advantage of managed services to reduce that total cost of ownership. Again, looking at a service like RDS. With RDS, again, we, we're taking care of the undifferentiated heavy lifting as it pertains to administering a database, which allows your team to focus on the application. Again, that you know, from a total cost perspective, allows you to really focus on the important value part of your particular system. Taking a look at kind of adopting a consumption model. So with AWS, you know, it's a, it's a pay-as-you-go model. So you're only paying for things as you need them. And so when you're doing that, you really want to make sure that you're looking at all of the right features that allow you to do that in an efficient way. Analyzing and attributing expenditure. With AWS and services like ta or features like tagging, you can really tag all of the resources across your platform and really do a show back or a build back to the various users and groups that use the different services that you're providing. And you can really get you know, finite detail as to what different departments or user groups are spending on the AWS platform. Taking advantage of the benefits of the economies of scale that the cloud provides. As AWS continues to grow and as we gain efficiencies across our various processes and procedures, um, we take a look at those opportunities and typically pass those things on to you as, as uh, cost savings in, in the form of price reductions. There have been a number over the course of the inception of AWS. And then last, lastly is kind of stop spending money on data center operations. We take a look at AWS, we take care of the undifferentiated heavy lifting as it pertains to racking and stacking servers and cabling and power and cooling, all those different tasks that typically don't derive a lot of business value and allow you to focus or distract you from focusing on kind of improving your system availability or improving delivering features to your end users. And just added is the operational excellence uh, pillar. 
So the operational excellence pillar basically talks around practices and procedures used to manage your production workloads. So one of the first critical things here is, is around automation and performing operations with code. If you have a task that's done in a repetitive way, you want to you make sure that repetitive task is done with code so that it's done without kind of uh, human intervention to remove that failure condition. You know, the code will execute every single time the same exact way because that's what it's going to do. And Joe's going to speak to that here in a little bit. You want to keep operations procedures current. You want to make sure that it's not undocumented as to changes in your system and how they reflect and how you're managing the production workload. Making raw or regular and small incremental changes, right? This is whether it's in your platform architecture or in your software architecture, the smaller the change you can make, the, the more finite you can have as far as the impact of that change and the ability for you to kind of make subsequent changes to that, which allows you to ultimately move faster. So as you're adding changes, that small change allows you to kind of incorporate it in real time and not having to have kind of big bang uh, upgrade or change cycles. And then learning from operational events or failures. You know, if you don't learn from a failure condition that you experience as you're running your, app, running your applications and software, um, that's probably a failure that you're going to encounter again. So as something, as an event occurs, and a failure occurs, what happened? What went wrong? How are you closing the loop to making sure that doesn't occur again? So <clears throat> when we have conversations as solutions architects with our customers and clients, what are some of the example issues across these different pillars as to things that we see uh, when talking to customers? So some of these examples are, let's take a look at analyzing AWS-specific logs. And many times we see things like logs are not being analyzed. Well, if you're collecting the data, if you're collecting logs on an elastic load balancer or an S3 bucket, and you're actually looking at what those logs are telling you, um, that's probably something you want to look at because otherwise the logs are just consuming storage and not really providing you any intelligence. Take a look for planning for recovery. And, it's, and, and you can see here is, is being unplanned, right? When you take a look at the reliability pill pillar and understanding how you're going to recover um, when there's some kind of failure condition, that's, that's important to understand, whether that's automated or some kind of procedure that you've defined, making sure that you have that identified is, is kind of critically important. And then lastly, the performance and cost optimization pillars. What are some example issues there? So we'll talk around evaluating new storage options. And you can see here it's listed as ad hoc. So it's important to understand that while evaluating new storage options may not seem critically important at first, you should always be kind of capturing the information around what storage is doing on your platform. So therefore, when new features come out or you need to expand capacity, increase performance, that you have kind of metrics and data to kind of back that up and that you can adopt those things as they need. Or as the AWS platform evolves with our pace of innovation and we add a new volume type or a new storage type of some sort, that you can identify that quickly and adopt that um, and many times will be provide you better performance or more cost value for that particular same function. And then lastly, around cost optimization is the governance of using of having AWS usage, not, not having a policy. Obviously, making sure you have a policy in place for the governance of your, of your spend on AWS is critically important so that you can make sure um, that you're, you're kind of in line with kind of budgetary assumptions and usage on the platform. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Joe Gardner. Joe is the Principal Cloud Architect at National Instruments, 
I've been working with Joe for three years and kind of seeing National Instruments, National Instruments and their journey um, to kind of achieving agility through Wallet Protected um, on the platform. Joe? Thank you, Tim. Hello, everybody. Uh, if you will, let me introduce myself and a little bit about National Instruments. Uh, so National Instruments, we are a 40-year-old company. We're based in Austin, Texas, and we actually have over $1.2 billion in annual revenue. Uh, we also have uh, over 7,000 uh, employees. We are globally distributed with nearly 60 offices around the world, and we serve over 35,000 unique customers on an annual basis. As for myself, uh, I'm a cloud architect at National Instruments. I joined NI in 2012, and in my time at National Instruments, I have uh, re-architected our entire infrastructure to take advantage of well-architected principles. And as a result of this, we've learned a lot about the well-architected framework. We've seen a lot of benefits, and I'm here to share those with you today. So a little bit about our uh, AWS usage. We started developing on AWS eight years ago, and we launched our first couple products in 2010. Uh, one of those products, the FPGA Compile Cloud, actually, I will actually talk about a lot more uh, today. Uh, when I joined in 2012, uh, we had things that were working pretty well, but we were, we were reaching our limits. We needed to make some changes. We needed to improve some things, and that's where we started to, uh, to adopt well-architected principles. So in 2013, we had our first small change, and I would call this our first catalyst for greater change. Uh, and we actually made a, uh, a uh, making a small change, I will go into more detail, uh, that helped our scaling to let us grow to handle more and more users. After doing that change in 2013, we realized a lot of the benefits, and we launched a new product in 2014, and that new product we built from the ground up to use the Well-Architected Framework. Uh, that was a fairly large undertaking for us, uh, but we learned a lot from that. And one of the big things that we learned from that was we had to go all in. Our existing products had to get moved over to the new environment. There was just way too many benefits uh, to not do that. So in 2015, we actually had a, that migration where we moved all our existing products over to the well-architected framework. So to start, I'm going to show you a very simple architecture diagram of what things looked like in 2012. And as you can tell, it was very simple. Uh, we used four AWS services at the time. We were using EC2 Classic, we're using Elastic Load Balancing, S3, and SimpleDB. Many people in here may not even know what SimpleDB is. It is the uh, NoSQL database solution before DynamoDB was announced. Uh, so this architecture, if you take a look at it, not only is it simple, it's got a lot of bad practices and a lot of failure uh, uh, mechanisms in here. So one of the key bad practices here is our root API keys were baked into the code and deployed on the backend instance. Those credentials were actually in our source code, so if someone within the company wanted to, they could go in there, find it, and they could own our system. Very, very bad practice. Uh, that backend server was also a single, uh, single server, so if it failed, our entire application was down. Uh, that was another uh, poor design feature. Uh, we actually ran MySQL on EC2. That is actually fine. That, you can be well-architected doing that. The problem was 
you need to make sure that you're able to recover quickly in case that machine does fail. It has. It's not fun. Uh, and so that's another area that we decided that we wanted to improve as well, or we, we eventually needed to improve. So talking about some of the challenges that we had uh, beyond just the architecture, uh, our software deployment process was very lengthy. Uh, I counted at least five manual steps after the developer had committed their code to source code uh, before it, uh, it could actually be running in the, uh, in the dev or test environment uh, or production. Uh, so five manual steps. It took, uh, a very, the, the amount of deployment time varied, but it was, uh, it was not a good use of time. Uh, we lacked a lot of automation. Uh, and one thing I want to point out here is uh, the time it took to replace the machine varied wildly, uh, but I would say it took at least 30 minutes for a very simple replacement. Some of the more complex replacements would take four hours or longer to do. Uh, it was a very painful process. You don't want to come in, have something planned to work on, and all of a sudden you have a machine failure or an application failure, and next thing you know, you just you guys spend four hours replacing it. Uh, and then one of the problems that we were starting to see was our ability to scale to meet demand was not keeping up with what we wanted. Uh, what was happening is our, our cloud products were becoming more popular with our customers, and as that growth occurred, we were seeing more usage, but we weren't able to keep up with, uh, with their demands. So that actually leads us to that first uh, change that we made with our FPGA Compiler Cloud. So we learned what FPGAs were uh, yesterday in the keynote. They're field programmable gate arrays, and basically it is uh, hardware that you can program. Uh, FPGAs are used everywhere from now EC2 instances to scientific uh, discoveries like some of the world's largest uh, radio telescopes. And FPGAs can actually be found in some consumer products. Uh, some of the newer cell phones have an FPGA inside of them as well. So the way that our customers use the FPGA Compiler Cloud is they use uh, NI's desktop software called LabVIEW, and they would perform their actual design using our interface and then they would either submit that, they would either run that compile locally, or they could submit it to the cloud. So these compiles can take a very uh, long time. I've seen some compiles take over 20, over 24 hours to run. So it makes sense for those customers to submit things to the cloud and free up their desktop resources uh, for other use. And what happens when they submit that to the cloud, it eventually lands on our job manager here, and then we have uh, EC2 instances running our workers. It would check in and say, is there any work to do? And if so, it would download it, it would run the compile, it would upload the results, and then the customer could actually download the results when it was ready. So looking at our scaling, one of the things that we had to scale here was the number of workers that we had based on how many compiles were, were needed to be run. So this is open up to our customers. If we had uh, you know, five compiles running, we only need five workers. If we had 20 compiles running, we needed 20. If we had 100, we needed 100. So what we did is we had an on-prem server that would actually connect to our job manager. It would check the queue information. It would find out how many jobs are, have been submitted, how many jobs are actually running, uh, and also identify how many workers are running, and then to determine if it needed to scale out or scale in the number of workers. And that's how we handled our, our, our scaling. But we had some problems with that, which we'll, uh, we'll get into a little bit more. So some of the challenges that we were seeing with this design, uh, as our usage grew, we're getting a lot of alerts about 
you know, jobs are backed up because uh, we're not scaling fast enough. Now, I don't like coming in and getting, you know, five or ten alerts a day. I like to come in and work and get zero alerts. I don't like it when, when I get paged, like I have to go respond to something. I'm pretty sure everyone else in here would be the same way. Uh, because things were taking a long time, our customers were not getting results back in a timely manner. Our customers would see that the, the jobs were actually waiting in queue. They would actually see, hey, this job's been in queue for you know, two seconds or 20 minutes. And we don't like that. We wanted them to have a very positive uh, experience, a very positive thought about National Instruments and our service. So we wanted to improve that. Uh, and something else I remember doing way too often is when we had some of our alerts going off and some of these uh, things were backing up, I remember spending many hours uh, running the commands manually to actually scale out our environment. And uh, it's not a good use of my time to, and it's not a good use of many engineers' time to do a manual step that can be automated that should be handled for us. Uh, you know, when I'm spending four hours running these manual commands, it is not a, a good use of, of time. So we broke this down to sort of identify how can we improve? What are the different areas uh, that, we, that we can improve? And really it came down to uh, uh, break it down to these four different areas, but I want to focus on uh, a couple of them. One of them is being how, what can be made faster? What needs to be made faster? So we actually broke down our scaling process and identified what was taking a really long time and how can we accelerate that? If something is taking one minute, that should take you know, five seconds, let's fix that. If something is taking five minutes, that should take 30 seconds, let's fix that, let's figure it out. And then how can we make this where it's automated, how it's scalable, so uh, there again, no more manual commands. So looking at our original design again, what we identified was uh, a couple problems here. One of them was with our, the monitoring of the queue data. So this is basically a feedback loop. So we would check to see what's going on, we would react, scaling out or scaling in, and then we would check again to find out, all right, what's our next action? Do we need to scale out again? Do we need to scale in again? What do we need to do? Well, what we discovered was when we actually monitored that queue, it was great. If no change was happening, we'd check it every minute. But if a change was actually needed, the change that was needed, whether it be scaling out or scaling in, had to be completed before we would actually check the queue again and change our, uh, our, our scaling efforts. So basically, if we need to, if we checked one time, we needed to scale out by two more machines, and we're spending time to scale out those two machines, next time we come back and check, oh, now we need to scale out another five machines, well, we just wasted time waiting for that. Now, we didn't want to actually check that feedback loop. We actually found the, the launching and the configuration of our servers was also taking a really long time. Uh, each machine was taking about five minutes to uh, configure. So after, after it came online and was available, uh, we spent about five minutes uh, configuring the machine. Uh, that was a very long time. Uh, we were actually able to reduce that significantly. We had got it down uh, to uh, under a minute. Another thing we identified was uh, that configuration process was being done serially. So if we were launching 10 machines, we had to wait for the first one to be completed before we started the second machine. We had to wait for the second machine to be completed before we started the third machine. So we had this cascading uh, wait time. So while our, our delays got to the point where we were seeing 10, 30 minute delays, if we didn't fix this, they're going to become even worse. We're going to be looking at you know, an hour or two hour delays. So we came up with a new scaling design. Now, we got rid of our on-prem server. 
that was a uh, really, really enjoyed doing that. I'll, I'll tell you, telling IT you can get rid of my on-prem server, good feeling. What we did is we uh, we had the job manager submit or calculate what it actually needed in terms of scaling. If it needed uh, all the data was available there, so why have another machine come in and determine if it needed to scale? That machine can do it. Can tell us already. So it ran. Uh, uh, some processing for us, and it submitted a custom uh, CloudWatch metric uh, that we could uh, then use to scale off of. We replaced our individual instances with an auto-scaling group. Uh, that allowed us to use a scaling alarm to actually scale out the number of machines that we had. And then the configuration process, we took this, manual, we took this process that was taking five minutes, we were able to distill that down to a, a, um, a single user data script, uh, which we were not using user data before, uh, we, we put that in the user data script, and we were able to get the machines to run that in about one minute. And because the machines in the auto-scaling group weren't dependent on any, uh, any service or any uh, external resource, they would run in parallel. So now if we needed 10 machines, basically it was after the 10th machine was launched, about a minute later, it would be ready. There was no more waiting for the, the, the previous nine to be completed. Uh, so that really, really helped our design uh, and one thing that we had to do, though, is we, we wanted to try to figure out, well, you got this new design. How, how do we deploy it? So we had developed our own internal tool to manage our infrastructure. Our, our internal tool was custom-coded, uh, and it wasn't uh, ready to handle uh, things like the auto-scaling group. So it's like, all right, we had to figure out how we're going to manage this. We wanted to do infrastructure as code. We were already doing infrastructure as code. We had to keep that as one of our, our practices. So we ended up putting this thing in a CloudFormation template, and uh, that became our infrastructure of code. One nice thing that resulted from that is we were actually able to test this new scaling design without turning off the old scaling design. And another benefit was, while the scaling design worked, any improvements that we made to it were a lot easier to, uh, to apply in, in CloudFormation. They were a lot easier to make uh, little tweaks uh, using uh, this tool. So a lot of the benefits we saw from this uh, improvement, you know, our scaling latency was, was dropped to from 30 minutes to less than five. We actually reduced our cost as well. We were no longer over-provisioning because of the long feedback loop. You know, so if a job completed and we had idle workers, they would take on the work instead of having to launch more machines. Uh, this time invested for this, uh, this work, uh, this particular project took us about uh, one, uh, one week to, to do. So 40 man hours, and this and that paid was paid back within a single month of time. So the rest of the year is just was like getting a free week. So if you think about this in, in ROI, you're thinking about you're looking at a 10x return in, in a single year. Uh, really, really good improvement. So we saw a lot of the benefits that we're getting from uh, CloudFormation and these other tools and using good designs. So now I'm going to talk about a new product that we had. So we decided to create a new product, and it was a web application. And to start with, we decided, all right, we want this to be well-architected from the beginning. So we looked, and we looked, and we found the AWS reference architecture for a web application. We identified where we needed to make some tweaks for, our, for things that were specific or unique to our application. For example, our backend servers needed to have access to S3. They also needed access to SimpleDB. 
and we added those to this diagram. So with this, we wanted to make sure that we were using a lot more of the AWS uh, services. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we were using VPC. Uh, we, we saw the writing on the wall that uh, all the new features, all the, all the cool things were happening in VPC. Let's go there. We wanted to use uh, RDS, and we used the MySQL engine. Uh, if you've ever replaced a, uh, a MySQL server running on EC2 uh, due to failure and had to run all the manual steps to perform a failover, you know using RDS is much, much better at handling that, uh, handling that process. Uh, we were really concerned about security. We knew having our root API keys uh, baked into the application was bad, so we were going to get rid of that, and we were going to use IAM and principle of least privilege. Uh, we also wanted to improve some other parts of our application, uh, and particularly creating our Amazon machine images, or AMIs, uh, and we also wanted to work on our CI-CD process. Uh, this is a new application. We expected code to be developed pretty fast, and we needed it to be deployed very rapidly. Uh, so with such a large uh, undertaking, we wanted to prioritize the different aspects of it. And really, uh, in this priority, the, the first three were our must-haves. We had to get these things done. Uh, we, went, we had to go to VPC. We had to have a, a good pipeline for deploying code. And we had to improve, increase our security. Uh, again, large undertaking, we need to break this down into smaller bite-sized pieces. And one thing we did for that was sort of identify these units of deployment. For any particular application or particular service in this, uh, in this new product, we made sure to identify, all right, what is our auto-scaling group? Uh, what is the uh, security group rules that we need for that? What is the IAM role? And what do we need, how do we want to scale that? Something to think about here when it comes to scaling, different pieces of your application are going to need to scale on different metrics. We identified, you know, at first we tried, well, everything will scale on CPU. Doesn't work. Some things need to uh, scale based off of memory usage. Some things need to scale off of network throughput. Uh, some things need a custom metric to scale. It's really important to test and identify what, uh, what your proper scaling metric is. And something about the, the Well Architecture Framework is it provides a lot of ability and a lot of flexibility to actually perform that testing and actually uh, identify what is your optimal uh, scaling metric. It also let us test different size instances. Uh, this is really good because we were actually able sometimes to go to a larger instance size and actually save money because we needed fewer of them or we needed them for a less, uh, uh, a less amount of time. So that was a benefit as well. Uh, creating the VPC. Uh, I am not a network, network engineer. Uh, cider blocks scare me a little bit still. Uh, so creating the VPC was one of the uh, most daunting challenges that we had. So what we did to, to create our VPC is we went to the networking experts within the company. We actually worked with Amazon Solution Architects as well to come up with a network topology that was going to work for this current application as well as let us grow to bring other applications into the same VPC. We came up with that network topology, and then we actually uh, created it using the VPC wizard. Uh, using the VPC wizard here was actually really good, really beneficial, because it handles some things like your first route table and your internet gateway and associating them. So after we created that initial VPC and the first uh, public and private subnet, we then went in and added the additional public subnets and private subnets until uh, we had our, our full network topology ready to go.
So now we had our network topology, but we wanted that network topology to be uh, just for our dev environment. And we wanted, that, we wanted to have the exact same network topology for our test environment and our production environment. So how do we do that without having to do this manually? So we knew what CloudFormation could do, and we knew that that was a way to do it, but we don't want to create this template from hand. So Amazon has another great tool called CloudFormer that you can launch, and what it will do, it will inspect your Amazon resources, and it'll let you select them, and you can export those resources as a CloudFormation template. So that's what we did. We, we launched CloudFormer, we identified all our VPC resources, and we exported that. So from that, we have a template that was our, our uh, VPC topology for our dev environment. We then go back, we delete our dev environment, our dev VPC, and then we recreate it using this template. So now we know all our changes are gonna be in source code with our CloudFormation template. And then we can create the exact same VPC topology for our test environment, for our QA environment, and for production. Uh, as we all, were also creating the auto-scaling groups and other resources, Amazon has a lot of simple templates and a lot of uh, simple uh, snippets as well that will provide those resources for you. And uh, we use those extensively to, to build up our environment to the point where we got everything into CloudFormation. Another area that we, we knew that we could improve and we did this time was creating our AMIs. Uh, previously we had all our AMIs were, were documented via uh, wiki pages. I'm sure we've all done this in the past. And then we go in there and manually run these commands to create an AMI. Well, that's typically a very long, tedious process. It's pr very prone to, uh, to manual error. Uh, and it's, it's not fun. So we looked and we evaluated all the popular configuration management solutions. We found one that worked well for us. And we started small creating a, a simple AMI just from launching an instance and then uh, baking it just from a, a plain image, plain instance. And then we slowly added additional services uh, when we were creating the AMI. So we, we would add uh, security patches, then we would add things like the AWS CLI, we would add uh, Nginx and Tomcat and Java and any of our monitoring tools to the point where uh, we would then have that all in a single playbook so now it takes one command to create an AMI, and it's ready, and it's actually a lot faster. So manually, things would take several hours. Uh, all of our, most of our AMIs take less than one hour. Most of them probably take less than, uh, uh, less than 10 minutes. It depends on uh, if, if you're starting from scratch or if you're using the previous version and applying just deltas. So some of the benefits we saw. Uh, one. So this is a new product. When you have a new product, how do you decide what to load test to? You don't know what customer demand is going to be. So it, it provides an interesting question like, well, did you load test the application? Yes, but I don't know what I'm load testing to. So what we did is we kind of, we, we thought about things in a different way. And we said, we're gonna load test to failure. We're gonna pick different metrics, we're gonna identify what is acceptable performance and what is not acceptable performance. And we're gonna load test until we hit those points. So we did that. And we found issues. We found issues with the application. We found issues with uh, the size of a, a database we were using. Uh, we found issues that we needed to add caching. So we went back and we made those changes. 
we improved our environment, and then we would repeat the test. And we'd find other issues, and we'd fix those. And we'd do this over and over and over again. We got to the point where like, all right, we're running some really big loads at this machine. We're pretty confident we're, we're well over what, uh, what we're actually gonna see in real life in production. And uh, by the way, running these tests were very short, very, very simple, because of the elasticity of the cloud, uh, very cheap as well. So we were able to run these really huge tests for just a couple of dollars. In the end, we launched this product we waited you know, a couple months to see how the, uh, you get some usage out there and get some good load on it. We then went back and tested and said, all right, what do we actually load test to? Just, we're just curious, you know, do we, uh, do we do well? We load tested to 100 times production capacity. And I'll tell you this, it feels really good to know that your application and your infrastructure can handle that much load and that you don't have to worry about uh, you're not going to get paged for capacity issues uh, for that. Uh, one thing we also did was our, our CI CD process. Now, previously, we had things that were, I mentioned earlier, at least five manual steps after the code was committed to source code to actually deploy it out. Uh, we focused on creating a process here. Code commit, code pipeline, code deploy were not available yet. Uh, so we had to come up with a homegrown solution and what we did was we made where all the developers had to do was to drop a code artifact into S3 bucket, into an S3 bucket, and it would be deployed to our uh, machines, uh, to the environment automatically. Uh, greatly simplified the process. In fact, they basically turned it into that. As soon as they, uh, you have Jenkins, as soon as the commit goes in, we build the artifact, we drop it in S3 as part of that. It makes it where they don't have to do any additional steps. It was really nice. Uh, one of the benefits we saw from that so using the old method, we would typically see uh, around five deployments a day. With the new, with our new process, we were seeing uh, order of uh, order of magnitude uh, greater. We're seeing around 50 to 100 uh, deploys a day. When you have a new product, that's really important. When you're making these changes, when you have a, a security bug, you need to be able to get your code out there really fast. So this is beneficial. This goes straight into one of the uh, one of the pillars in the well architecture framework. You know, being able to uh, be agile, be able to test quickly, uh, and being able to deploy code is one of those areas. So with that, we saw all these benefits, and we saw other benefits as well. Uh, I'll talk about some of those uh, as we continue. But it became very obvious that we had to move all our existing products over to this new framework. So that was the next part. So what we did is we actually identified the different areas that were impacted and what we were running in 2012 and what we wanted to move to in 2015. And I want to point out a couple of things in here. Uh, in particular, I want to talk about auto-scaling and elastic load balancing. Uh, our uh, job manager for the FPGA compiled cloud is a single point of failure. Uh, we're working on getting that to no longer be that, the case, but until then, it is, uh, it is what it is. We still put that single point of failure in an auto-scaling group. We still put that single point of failure behind a load balancer. And the reasons are, are, are plenty, but one of the, some of the key things are, if that machine ever has a failure, because it is an auto-scaling group, it gets replaced for us automatically. So the way things used to be, 
If that machine had a failure, someone would, the on-call would, an alert would go out, the on-call would get uh, paged, they'd have to you know, stop what they're doing, you know, get to a computer if it was on the weekend, and they'd have to start to uh, uh, debug the machine, make sure it's, it's down, and start the replacement process. Now what happens is if that machine goes down, AutoSailing detects that, it launches a new machine for us, the on-call still gets paged, but now instead of actually starting the replacement process, he comes in and just verifies that everything is working again. So it, it provides a lot better uh, solution for the on-call. They're, they're spending a lot less time on things, and the downtime is, is cut as well, is reduced. Uh, we put that machine behind a, a load balancer as well because when it comes time for any software patches or upgrades, having it behind a load balancer reduces the downtime required to actually replace that machine. Previously, we would see a downtime of several hours to actually replace that machine for a new version. Now, because it's behind a load balancer, we have that downtime to just to under five minutes and typically gets done in under two minutes. So that was a very big improvement as well. Uh, one thing to note, in 2015, we changed our priority a little bit of where, we, uh, where our focus was. Uh, as some people remember, uh, there were three big security vulnerabilities that came out in, in this time frame. You had Poodle, you had Shellshock, and you had Heartbleed. Uh, three very public, three well-known uh, well uh, vulnerabilities. What we had experienced or what we had seen is we were able to respond to those vulnerabilities a lot faster on our well-architected environment than we were with our old environment. So with that, we knew that hey, anytime these vulnerabilities come out, we need to be able to address them fast. We need to make sure that things remain secure. So with those three vulnerabilities and what we had seen in our experience, you know, you know, we were able to patch our well-architected environment in just a, you know, just a few hours or less, whereas our old environments took say it's, you know, a couple of days uh, to patch. Uh, we, we saw the, the, the we're vulnerable for, for a couple of days, and that's not a good feeling to say, you know, someone can be leveraging these vulnerabilities to attack us. Uh, so we knew that was, that became our number one priority. Uh, security remains our number one priority as well. So some of the improvements that we saw, so we deleted our root API keys. If I could find out, I'd actually show it up here for you because you can't use it anymore. Uh, so we're using IAM roles. Uh, which is really good if we're following the principle of least privilege. Uh, we also got rid of our single points of failure. You know, the architecture diagram you saw earlier was a very simple version, simplified version. We had a lot of single points of failure in there. We were able to get rid of all but one of those, and we're working on that last one as well. Uh, creating a separate environment. Uh, I'm not joking when I say it, used to, it would take a month to create a new environment. So if you wanted to do a particular regression test or you wanted to do benchmarking with our old tools, it would take a month to spin up a new environment. So what happened was uh, you went, it, never, it never happened. You would repurpose an existing environment to do that load or to do whatever job that was. And uh, you basically whatever environment you sacrificed, you would stop doing, which was typically our development effort. So we'd stop developing while they were using the, the other env that, that environment for uh, benchmarking or, or regression or whatever. Now we can create an environment in less than two hours. We've done this multiple times. Our customers, uh, our, our internal teams are uh, ecstatic about this. They, they come to us thinking it's going to take a week, and we tell them, no, we can get it to you this afternoon. Uh, they, they feel really good about that.
One of our applications used to take two weeks to get a new version out there. And the reason it took two weeks was because it had to have uh, multiple AMIs created for it. And those AMIs would take literally multiple days to create by hand. We now have that automated to the point where, in the worst case, we're starting from a blank uh, AMI. It takes, less, it takes about four hours, a little bit less. And the reason it takes so long is because it, we actually have to download and extract about 100 gigabytes of files. If we don't have to extract those files, we can actually build that machine in less than five minutes. So we can deploy our code, we can deploy new versions a lot faster. That makes our development teams really happy to know, oh, I want, last night, I want the nightly build. You've got it. You know, we, we can do it every day now. You know, oh, we have a patch that we, were, that we pushed this morning. We won't see that out there. We can do it. It's, it's really nice. And then uh, our, code, our code gets out there a lot faster as well. So that takes us through 2015. We're not done yet, but we're getting there. We're getting pretty close. We weren't done improving our environment. We wanted to continue uh, improving things. So we wanted to focus on increasing our security and making it better. We wanted to have multi-region DR. We wanted to have more automation. And we want to make things simpler and easier. I, I tell people, my number one job is to automate myself out of a job. And uh, I'm happy to say I've done pretty well at automating a lot of those things away. So some of the things that we did for security. As soon as CloudTrail came out, we turned it on. If you're not using CloudTrail, log on as soon as the session is over and turn it on. It is, it is a service you have to be using. And after you turn it on, start monitoring those logs as well. As, as Tim mentioned, having logs and not monitoring them isn't good. I'll give you a couple examples of things that we do in CloudTrail. We make sure that anyone who logs onto the console is using MFA, multi-factor authentication. We all forget our phones, we'll leave it at home, or we'll have to get a new phone or whatever, and we'll have to uh, disable MFA. No big deal, it happens to everybody. But what we do is we log that and we report it to the team, so what happens is we don't forget that we need to turn MFA back on. It helps us make sure that we're following best practices, that we're using MFA. Another thing we do, we actually check to see what regions are being used. We're not using all 14 regions that Amazon offers. Uh, but we do know which ones that we are using. So if we see any activity going on in a region that we're not using, someone may have made a mistake, and we want to make sure we don't leave resources in that region running unexpectedly, driving up costs. So we actually monitor that with CloudTrail and we report it to the team, and we all say, oh, I'm sorry, I launched my machine in the wrong uh, environment. Let me uh, get rid of it and put it where, I, where, it, mean, where it needs to go. Uh, Amazon Inspector. This is really good at making sure that your, your AMIs are patched for security, security vulnerabilities. And then Web Application Firewall, another great thing, uh, especially now that uh, you, I think we heard this morning uh, AWS Shield is out. If you're using uh, Web Application Firewall, it's, uh, it's included in there. You can get the advanced level of protection as well, so you're protected against DDoS and other uh, malicious attacks. So because we had all our, or because we had our infrastructure in, as code, we, and it, specifically a lot of it being in CloudFormation, we knew that we could uh, go multi-region pretty easily. All we had to do was to take those templates and run them, create the stacks in another region. And what we did is 
we actually tried that, and we would find small little things like this where we had something hard-coded to a specific region. We would uh, change that to make it region agnostic, and then we could actually create an exact replica of an environment in another region. Now, uh, it's a good feeling that hey, if something were to ever happen to our primary region that we use, we had the ability to move to another region very quickly. I would expect it, I'll take it back, I know how long it takes. It takes less than two hours. Uh, and again, part of the reason for that, though, is other Amazon tools that they provided. You now have the ability to copy, or we've had this for a while, the ability to copy omnis from one region to another. That helped us do our multi-region DR. The fact you can copy RDS snapshots from one region to another, that helps us with our multi-region DR. So we did this, we tested it. It makes it a lot easier. You have to test the process. Just because you have it documented or you think you know how to do it, doesn't mean it actually works. This is something we found. We're like, oh, we think we have it. Well, let's try it. Well, it failed, and we had to fix it, and now it works. Uh, making things simpler. I don't like managing EC2 instances. Uh, we have some applications that work just fine running on EC2 instances behind a load balancer. That doesn't mean that they're going to stay that way. Uh, so some of those applications, as we're making updates to them, as we're adding new features or functionalities, we're doing a lot of evaluation of, like, do we still need a server for this? And a lot of those we're actually moving over to API Gateway and Lambda. And uh, I'll tell you one benefit that we've really seen from this. Uh, it took a fair amount of effort to get our deployment time to under a minute. Uh, so developers get the new version of code, they actually get it running in an uh, environment uh, because we want to do things with no downtime. Uh, it, it, takes, it took us about a minute uh, the way we handle things. Uh, when you're doing it with Lambda, it takes less than a second. You just pop it in there, and I don't know, I don't know if I could measure it, but I, I know it's less than a second. <laughs> so that's a really good feeling. Developers love that as well. Uh, I love this one. Uh, when you, we created our, our VPC, we created a NAT instance. Uh, NAT gateway is not available at the time. Amazon wrote a great white paper on how to have highly available NAT instances. We wrote the code. It took a couple weeks to write. It was several hundred lines of code once we got it done in CloudFormation. Again, two weeks, uh, multiple weeks to write this. That gateway was announced. I was like, I want to try this out. You know, it was toward the end of the day. And I was like, I want to research it and see, see what I need to do, and I'll finish it tomorrow morning. So with about you know, half an hour left in the day, I started on it. Fifteen minutes later, I had that gateway running in CloudFormation, and I replaced the several hundred lines of code with just 12 lines of code. And I was like, I thought this was going to take me hours, and it took 15 minutes. Incredible, incredible improvement. And now I don't have to worry about managing that NAT instance anymore. And I get a lot of other benefits as well, because NAT Gateway provides them for me. Uh, a couple other services are really good. Uh, I won't go into too much detail about these. Certificate Manager, you know, Make sure that you're running, uh, keeping your, uh, your traffic encrypted in, in transit. AWS config is really good to make sure you know what's happening to your environment uh, as it moves on. So looking at some of the uh, benefits, uh, so we're now able to, we practice going DR to another region. Uh, one thing I want to talk about here a little bit is our growing of applications. So we've more than tripled the number of applications with zero headcount increase. That in itself is pretty nice. 
the variety of applications has increased as well. Those three applications were all Java. We now do Java, JavaScript, Python, .NET, and we're working on our first Go application. We would not have been able to have that variety of applications uh, in our old environment. Using well-architected principles, using the framework, allowed us to increase the variety of applications, let the developers do what they do best, and that we're not tying them to a certain tool. Another thing, we're actually able to accelerate how fast we bring on applications. Now, we've actually brought on more applications in the past year than we have in any previous year. And because, again, it's because of the framework. Uh, one more thing here, uh, that's not listed on here, uh, Netflix Chaos Monkey. Netflix Chaos Monkey will randomly terminate machines. You can configure it to terminate your machines in your environment. When, we start, when I started, running Chaos Monkey was unfathomable. We, we just knew it wasn't possible. If it took 30 minutes to replace a machine, you can't have machines going down randomly. We turned it on in dev. We learned some things about our environment. We made improvements. And right now, we run Chaos Monkey in production. It has really helped us uh, make sure that things are reliable. It has really helped make our environment really strong. I just have two more slides. I'm going to get through these uh, pretty quick. Uh, lessons learned. I would say the number one thing that I have done with the team is not any of the code that I've written. The number one thing that I have done is help instill a culture of change and improvement. That is required to be well architected. As Amazon introduces new things, you have to improve and continue to improve. Everything that we've done on the well architected framework has paid us back immensely and time saved. Uh, we're talking about 2x to 10x return within a single year of uh, developer's time or, or uh, in, in engineering time. Uh, you also need qualified people to accomplish this. Uh, my personal belief is anyone who is using AWS, whether it's operations or development, uh, within 18 months of using AWS, you should be uh, certified at the associate level. And I think your advanced people uh, need to be certified at the professional level. My personal belief is at least 10 people need to be at that level. And one other thing is, uh, if you have a small team, make sure at least two people are certified at the professional level so they can really talk shop, communicate well with each other. And then finally, you don't become well-architected. It's not a milestone that you just say, oh, I'm done. Let me go work on something else. It's a journey. You keep working on it. We saw, we've seen a lot of improvements. We've seen a lot of announcements in the past couple of days. One of my jobs going back, uh, when I go back to Austin, will be reading all the details about these new services and figuring out how I can improve my infrastructure. So as Amazon improves, I need to make sure that I take those improvements and bring them to our infrastructure. And with that, I'm going to give it back to Tim. But wait, there's more. So we just launched a new landing page. Here's some resources to take with you. So if you go to aws.amazon.com slash well-architected, this is a landing page where you can find all of the latest white papers on the well-architected framework, as well as individual white papers on each of the various pillars of the well-architected framework. So check it out. Look at those resources. And with that, thank you very much.